Good morning. What a welcome. Before we continue, you should know that I have two fears in life. One being heights and the other being public speaking. As a runaway Annie in the middle of singing The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow at a music festival, I promised my younger self that that would be the last. But here I am. I'm sure you'll be very glad to know not as Annie. All that being said, bear with me this morning as I find my feet in this. This morning, we are continuing our joy series, A Colony of the Heart, reading our way through Philippians. Lucy Ray kicked us off a couple of weeks ago, looking at joyful thanksgiving. Ellen Emerson was with us last week, looking at one heart, one spirit, one mind. And this morning, we are looking at joyful resilience. Before we dive in, let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you so much for this time that we get to dive into your word. Holy Spirit, will you come? Will you speak to us each individually and where we're at in our lives right now? Come and dwell among us today in this service. In your precious name, amen. We are reading from Philippians 1, verses 12 to 26. If you have a Bible, turn with me. If not, the words should appear behind me on the screen. Philippians 1, verses 12 to 26. This is God's word. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound in account of me. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. Let me set the scene first. Paul's journey to Rome began in Jerusalem, where he was forewarned by the Holy Spirit that imprisonment and affliction awaited him. 
No sooner was he falsely accused of defiling the temple by bringing in a Gentile, lynched by a religious mob, and ended up in prison only by pleading his Roman citizenship. He was made the subject of unjust and unprovoked insult and shame, malicious misrepresentation and deadly plot. Paul was absolutely itching to get to Rome. He knew if he could get to the hub of the empire, many could be saved. From Corinth, he writes to the Romans and says, I am ready, I'm so eager to preach to you that are at Rome. And before he even gets there, he's been put in prison. I can only imagine the frustration and disappointment. It's like the football or rugby game of the season is coming up and one of the players is put on the bench before the game has even started, gutting. Or when you're absolutely starving, right? And mom's like, I'm doing dinner tonight, so exciting. You arrive home and you're like, what's for dinner? And she says, stew, right? And it's, it's mince, it's not even steak. But when Paul finally arrives in Rome after being shipwrecked, it's in the company of the condemned, summoned for at least two years under house arrest, awaiting the uncertain decision of Nero. But Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he says that what has happened has actually served to advance the gospel, opposite to what it may look like. The Greek word for advancement is prokope, which, mean, which comes from the verb prokopetein, used to describe the cutting down of barriers for advancement in relation to an army. Picture an area of trees and undergrowth being chopped down to pave a way for the army to come through, removing any barriers that would hinder the progress. That is what Paul is saying. He's saying that his imprisonment has actually paved a way for the progress of the gospel. Paul was chained to the palace guards, known as the Praetorian Guards. They were the elite unit of the Imperial Roman Army that served the Roman Emperor. If you think Buckingham Palace Guards are intimidating, think twice. There was a rota day and night in which each guard would take a four-hour shift, bearing in mind the unit was made up of thousands of soldiers. Prison in Rome was not like it is for us today. No food or resources were given and those imprisoned were at the mercy of their visitors' generosity in receiving much needed necessities. Which is why Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, to thank them for their generosity as they give him much needed resources. Paul was able to preach freely, which meant that the guards would hear Paul preaching and talking to his visitors. And as you can imagine, soon knew while he was there. His imprisonment paved the way for the preaching of the gospel to the finest regiment in the Roman army, resulting in some being saved and others in Rome growing more confident to proclaim the gospel without fear, making an impact on the whole Roman public. If I'm honest, if I was Paul at this point, having just been unjustly put in prison, I would be at my wit's end. Trial after trial, frustration after frustration. I would have reached full capacity, and my passion and my excitement would be zero. We read a snapshot of his life in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, and night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from my false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on, my, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then we hear Paul's attitude in verse 20. Let me read it again. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. An attitude of expectation, hope, courage, and trust, even after all that he's been through up to this point. And remember that he's awaiting for a decision of whether or not he will be executed. And that is his attitude. You see, the real thing happened in Paul's heart. He encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus and he got the vision. The vision is Jesus, his central passion and purpose in his life. The only purpose that makes sense to him is to live for Christ with a passion for the progress of the gospel. His preference was actually death. He would have exchanged camp life here on earth for a home life in heaven with Christ, where the uncertainties and dangers that we face in this life are no more. Yet, he says, that it's better for you that I remain here. His unbroken confidence in Jesus is where his hope comes from, which fuels his joy. His confidence is in the heart knowledge that he who began a good work in him will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that God is interested in our personal history and works everything out for our good. I love how Dallas Willard defines joy. He says this, Joy is not about pleasure, a mere sensation, but a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. Hope in the goodness of God is joy's indispensable support. Our reality is this. As we live in the tension of the now and not yet of the kingdom of God, in a fallen world, none of us are immune to pain and suffering, trials and tribulations. Probably not the message you're expecting to hear on this sunny Sunday morning. But we will find ourselves in circumstances we don't always hope for if we haven't already yet. Unmet desires and longing, confusion, change, trials, conflict, strained or broken relationships, heartache and physical pain are amidst the long list that wreak havoc on our lives and can rob us of our joy, our hope in the goodness of God. And to be honest, in many ways, my current reality is not one that I was hoping for. Emotional, physical and mental pain have wreaked havoc over my life over the last six years. I can vividly remember sitting in Musgrave Hospital. I've been going for routine checkups since I was born. 
and recent to that time had been a lot of pain with my back but I thought it was because I was growing as you do when your dad is six foot seven. In fact, mum was sitting beside me completely unconcerned on her phone organising a coffee morning. In the next few minutes, that coffee morning fell apart and so did the visions and the dreams I had at that time for my life. Following that appointment, I spent years attending hospital to try and find a solution to the pain. My hope rested in the hands of consultants and their expertise, and even the possibility of spinal surgery seemed like a glimmer of hope. I just wanted to be out of pain, to live a normal life, and to get on living with my life. But my last appointment with the surgeons did not bring the news that I was hoping for. A couple of months ago, I received another disheartening diagnosis. I came out of the hospital doors and before, before making it to the car, I just broke down and cried. The overwhelming thoughts of how was this going to affect my life further, being asked questions already about things down the line, the voice in my head saying, I can't take any more. My desire and longing to live a pain-free life and my desire for relief, it all came screaming at me in the face. The life that Paul exemplifies in trusting God helps me through my present reality. That even after experiencing the masses of dark threads the recent years had woven into the pattern of his life, the animosities and bodily pains, the lies, the misrepresentations and deceitfulness, the miscarriage of justice, the chains which forcibly kept him from traveling for the gospel, the mental turmoil of appealing to Caesar, abasing his own people, the nearness of death and diminution of hope, the triumph of wickedness and the continued suppression of the truth. As the biblical scholar Alec Motier puts it beautifully, after all that, he invites us to take these things and look at them in the face. For it is these things which have resulted in the progress of the gospel, contrary to what their surface appearance may suggest. And it is true for us today, just as much as it was the apostles, for each and every case, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6, God rules. The pressures of life are at the hands of the potter, who is also our father. The fires of life are those of the refiner. He does not abandon the perfecting process to others, nor is he ever in his sovereign greatness knocked off course by the malpractice of evil men or by the weakness of good men. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. He has said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And I'm not demeaning the emotions and the pain that we experience in the moments that mark us. But what I am saying is that our confidence and trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God fuels the joy in which our lives can also be marked by. There are two things that I think that we as a church today and as individuals following the way of Jesus can take from Paul's orientation. The first being priorities. We live in a culture which is dominated by self-gratification. People are literally paid to steal our attention and advertise to us things to fill our lives with. And they're good at it, right? They overhear conversations we've talked about to then throw them at us when we go onto Google or Instagram or Facebook, stealing our focus and reorienting it onto us. What can I consume? Making us the priority and center of it all. 
And it's not just materialistic things. It's the career prospects, the holiday desires, the relationships that we chase. And I'm not saying that those things aren't good and can't be enjoyed. But what I am saying is I think there's a problem when they become an idol in our lives. The thing that we live for and put in front of our love and longing for Jesus rather than, rather than the desire to see the things of his kingdom here on earth. Gordon Fee writes this. One wonders what the people of God might truly be like in our postmodern world if we are once again people of this singular passion. Too often for us, it is for me to live as Christ plus work, leisure, accumulating wealth, relationships, etc. And all too often, the plus factor has become our primary passion. If we were asked the question today, what is your singular passion? I wonder what our answer would be. Paul has realised that he is a citizen of two worlds and has been apprehended by Christ. In Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, Paul writes this. I'm not saying that I have this all together, that I have made it, but I am well on my way, reaching out for Christ, who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all this but I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running and I'm not turning back. Philosopher James K.A. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, explains the first, last and most fundamental question in discipleship is found in the Gospel of John. When Jesus was walking by John and his two disciples, John says, look, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples started to follow Jesus. He turns to them and he says, what do you want? Will you come follow me is another version of what do you want? As is the fundamental question that Jesus asks his errant disciple, Peter, do you love me? And that is the piercing question. What do you want? Because ultimately we are what we want. Smith goes on to say that our wants and desires and longings are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our action and behaviour flows. This question is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what he wants, to desire what he desires, to hunger and thirst after him, and to crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. Our progress and joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our singular primary passion. And the second thing that I think that we can take from Paul's orientation is perspective. Paul's orientation gives us perspective in a world gone mad. I don't know about you, but boy, am I glad for the many moments in my day and my week where God speaks to me about perspective and gives me fresh perspective. In the constant cycle of COVID news, life circumstances, exhaustion, busyness, it is so easy to lose perspective of the main thing. Paul's orientation of his imprisonment leads us to a fresh perspective that our ultimate reason here on earth is for Jesus, to yearn for Jesus, for the things of his kingdom. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In other words, I want to learn to die to myself every day 
so that I realize that all I am is because of Jesus and for Jesus. Paul wants nothing more than Christ, to know Christ, to live for Christ, to be with Christ. Christ, the one who has God emptied himself, the one who humbled himself on the cross, the one whom God has given the name above all names, Christ, the one who Paul has gladly suffered the loss of all things to both gain him and know him, both his resurrection power and his sufferings. Christ, the one who wept at Lazarus' graveside, the one who suffers with us in the middle of the pain, the one who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I love Psalm 16, verse eight. King David gives us the secret of his life. His perspective was this. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Before I finish, I want to say one last thing. Last Sunday, Alan was talking to us about the unique cultural moment that we are living in and the position that the church is in right now. Never again will we have the chance to live for him in this moment, in the circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. And I also believe that if we haven't got the vision, if our loves, priorities and perspectives are not aligned with the things of the kingdom of God, then I'm afraid we'll miss what God has for us in the here and now as we seek to usher in his kingdom. I was listening to a podcast recently and John Mark Coomer said this, we should not fix our eyes on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a short life or a long one, for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Our only desire and choice should be this. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. I want and I choose what, leads to, what better leads to God's deepening life in me. I'm just going to invite Jamie to come back up. And before I finish, I want to read a line from the welcoming prayer by Father Thomas Keaton, who was an American monk and priest known for his insight and methods of contemplative prayer. He follows the guide of St. Ignatius of naming and accepting the movements of our emotions. It says this, I let go of my desire for security, affection and control and embrace this moment as it is. I let go of my desire for security, affection, and control and embrace this moment as it is. Letting go of our desires, letting go of outcomes. That's a tough one, right? Easy said, hard in practice. I let go of my desire for control over my children. I let go of my desire to find security in my friends, in my husband, and in my wife. I let go of my desire for that holiday that I was expecting, the place in my life that I thought that I would already be at. You name it. And I wonder if our prayer was that, if our desire was Jesus, if to live is Christ and to die is gain, characterized our individual and corporate lives. I can't help but think, what kind of a community would we be? What kind of a people would we be known for? How would that shape Belfast as we leave here as scattered servants? How would that shape our relationships? And how would we pray for others to our left and to our right, holding each other up in the midst of life's pain and uncertainties? 
I wonder if it's in that place where we find Jesus more precious, more valuable, more satisfying, more joyful, more boastworthy than anything and everything that this world could offer us that we find joyful resilience as we navigate our present realities and find that life in Jesus is greater than our current circumstances.